Good morning. Greetings in Jesus' name again. How many of you know Greek? What does that word mean in Greek? Okay, you folks that had doctrine of the church should know that. <laughs> in our King James Bibles, that is the word that is translated church. Okay? Turn with me to Matthew 16, 18. Matthew 16, 18 is just simply a springboard for where I'd like to go today. Um, this is the first time we have the word church showing up in, the, um, in our New Testaments. It's Jesus speaking, and he said, he's talking to Peter here, And I say unto thee, Thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. A couple of things move my mind in this direction this morning. Thank you. A few weeks ago, um, when it was my turn to have the instruction class, we talked about the doctrine of the church. And as I was um, studying for that, preparing for that a little bit, um, I began to realize the scope of what the church actually is and what it should mean to us. I'm not sure if it always means to me what it should. So that, that kind of stirred my mind in that direction. And then uh, three weeks ago, we were uh, we have this this thing that happens every other Sunday morning at our house. Um, the milk truck comes shows up about somewhere between six thirty and seven o'clock, depending on who's driving that morning. And 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 he can make a little bit of a nuisance out of himself because six thirty we're not done milking, so he gets to just hang around a little bit. And so he's usually there fumbling around in the uh, in the milk house and. And on Sunday mornings, uh, probably most of you know this, some of you don't, but we have a few milk customers here at church. So we, uh, we have to load up a few gallons of milk and, and bring along to church. And so my, the milk haulers there watching my wife do her little deal there, filling up all these gallons of milk. And, and he goes, wow, you know, somebody drinks a lot of milk. Or, you know, he kind of made a comment on this. And, and I said, oh, I said, we go to church for two reasons. I said, we go to worship the Lord and to deliver milk. And I said, in that order. And um, he goes, I, I feel like, I, I think he felt like he had to uh, comment to that. And so he said, well, he goes, I worship God in his greatest cathedral out, out of my truck window every Sunday morning or something like that, he goes. And um, again, that got me thinking about attitudes about the church and, um, and what it means and et cetera, et cetera. It's interesting to me, as I was researching in preparation for this a little bit, and not that this matters at all, but it's just a commentary on our times, that it is estimated, as close as I can tell, that in America this morning, 18% of the population felt it was important enough to get up and actually come to church, to a building and worship God. That's not very many people when you think about the uh, the population of the U.S. is somewhere around two, 320 million or so. Well, the value of church to many professing Christians today is alarmingly poor. 
And I feel like this attitude is maybe even spilled over into our lives as well. Um, and I have to confess, as I, as I pondered that, I thought, you know, perhaps I can even pick up that attitude in myself <clears throat> sometimes, that I don't have a, a proper concept of what the church is or what it should mean to me. So I, I decided to get a dictionary and just see what the, what the, how Webster defines a church. And here's how, he, here's how he defines it. He said it's a building for public and especially Christian worship. That's definition number one. It is number two, the clergy or officialdom of a re- religious body. Three, it is a body or organization of religious believers. I would suggest that Webster, okay, let me back up. While that would be the, the way that most, many, maybe all of us would define church, as I studied in preparation for this talk, I found that the connotation of that word that I wrote up there on the board and that is translated church in our New Testament are not exactly what we think of as church. And so stick with me here. It it might get a little tedious here for a few minutes, but I'll I'll make my case for you. In Strong's, if you would look up this word, you would see that he says that, and by the way, you say that, um, ecclesia, ecclesia, I think I have that right, ecclesia, I think is the way that's pronounced. He said that the, the, the prefix ek means called out of, and Klesis, which would be the, uh, the last part of the word, means a calling. Okay, so in other words, to put the two together, it means that someone is calling you out of something. Okay, so it's a called out. Um, if you use this definition, the definition of church as translated in our New Testaments uh, fits very nicely with what we think of as God's church. I was interested that the memory verse that I volunteered to take a couple of weeks ago came out of Leviticus, but here was the verse, because uh, I'm sure you don't remember, I wouldn't either if I, if I didn't uh, have this in front of me. But it says, And you shall be holy unto me, for I the Lord am holy, and have severed you from other people that you should be mine. Now that's, uh, that's Leviticus, that's Old Testament. But it's interesting that in the Old Testament, God said, you're, you're literally severed from other people in your mind. You're called out. Okay, uh, Isaiah 52. Depart ye, depart ye, get ye out from thence. Touch no unclean thing. Go you out of the midst of her. Be ye clean that bear the vessels of the Lord. Again, go you out of the midst. Be clean. Titus 2 who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people. Okay, a called out people. First Peter, um, again, this is something that Pete expounded on last Sunday. A chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, that you should show forth the praises of him who called you out of darkness into the marvelous light. And those familiar words in 2 Corinthians, Wherefore, come out from among them and be ye separate. You see that theme? That theme just, it resonates all through the Old and New Testament that there is a calling out to something, from something to something, 
for a defined purpose. Okay, let's let's get a little bit uh, more. Um, let, let's go academic here for just a little bit. I'd like to talk about this word on the board just a little bit more now. If you turn to Acts 19, I think it would be good if we would turn there, because this is uh, this is an extremely important passage in understanding this word ecclesia and how it is interpreted or or um, uh, translated in our Bibles. So if you go to Acts 19, the latter part, you have what we call the uproar at Ephesus. So um, um, Paul is there, and uh, the, he, he's preaching to the people, and there, there became this fear that because if people would accept Jesus and this new gospel that was being preached, it would be really hard on business because they were... They, they had quite a uh, business of making this goddess, Diana. And, um, you know, what would, what would happen to the economy? So anyway, um, if you look, go to verse 32, it says, Some therefore cried one thing and some another, for the assembly was, acu- was confused, and the more part knew not wherefore they were come together. Okay. Um, so this was this kind of mob that had formed there, and it calls it an assembly. Now, if you would look that word up in, in Strong's, that word is ecclesia. Okay, it's the same word that is every other time translated church. All right, and you notice that there was a, an assembly and they were come together. Okay. So if you get down now to verse 39, it says, But if ye inquire anything concerning other matters... Now this is, the, um, uh, this is the spokesman of the group here trying to bring order to this group. I'm, I'm skipping a lot here. It says, But if ye inquire anything concerning another matter, it shall be determined in a lawful assembly. Again, that word is ecclesia. And if you go down... To verse 41, and when he had thus spoken, he dismissed the assembly. Again, ecclesia. I found it very fascinating that when Jesus spoke his words to Peter there, that we read in the beginning, this word that is translated church, and Peter understood in his time as ecclesia, however that would have been pronounced or thought of, he did, not, he, he did not think of Jesus as introducing something new. When he thought of an ecclesia, he thought of a, a group of people in a Greek city-state that was responsible for uh, politics, for the execution of the government. Okay? That's what he thought of. That's what, that's what that word was used for. To read uh, verbatim um, a definition that I came across uh, regarding this, it says this assembly, this ecclesia at these in these uh, these um, Greek cities, met at regular intervals in Athens about thirty to forty times a year, elsewhere less frequently, and also in cases of urgency as extraordinary as an extraordinary ecclesia. Its sphere of competence included decisions on suggested changes in law, on appointments to official positions, and on every other important question of internal and external policy, such as contracts, treaties, 
war and peace, and finance. To these were added in special cases a task of sitting in judgment, which fell as a rule to regular courts. And then it, this, this man also comments that the ecclesia often opened with prayers and sacrifices to the gods of the city. I, I just found that fascinating. That when Jesus announced this to Peter, I don't know what Peter thought. I really don't know. But very, very likely, his mind went a different direction than you and my minds go today when we read that verse. To, the, to that word, to the New Testament saint, or to the New Testament person, during those times, they understood it as an assembly of citizens in a local town with political reasons for assembly. All right, so this just it's just interesting how that how that word has um, has evolved as we have um, used it coming down through through the years. Um, so to to those people, it had political overtones, not necessarily religious overtones. Uh, very very interesting. So how did what about our word church? Where did where did that come from, or why do we have it translated church in most of the New Testament, except for these three words here in Acts 19. Well, as it turns out, the word church comes from another Greek word that I can't pronounce and won't attempt to, but it's a different, a different Greek word. And this particular word is not used but twice in the New Testament. And the word is something like kuriakos, and it means pertaining to the Lord. And the two times that that's used in the New Testament is in 1 Corinthians 11.20 where it talks about the Lord's Supper, okay, pertaining to the Lord's. That word, the Lord's, is this word, kuriakos. And in Re Revelation 1 where John talks about being in the Spirit on the Lord's Day, all right? So those are the only two times that the Greek word that we get our word church from is used in the New Testaments. In the New Testament. It's interesting that the first English Bible that we have, um, or not we have, but that was translated, the Tyndale Bible, when, when William Tyndale uh, translated his Bible into English, he used the word congregation where we have our word church. Okay? So it was a different, people thought of it differently when they read that. So the question could be asked, why the, why the difference? Why, why, did, why does our King James versions use the word church rather than the word, say, maybe congregation or assembly? Why was that? And this is where we get into the nuances of, of perhaps uh, politics, unfortunately. But as it turns out, the King James Bible, of course, was, was translated on, on uh, the demand, I guess, of, of old King James there. And it was in reaction, or as an a, um, alternative, I should say, to the Geneva Bible, which King James had no time for, because the Geneva Bible was Calvin's Bible, complete with footnotes and a way to interpret Calvin's Bible the way Calvin thought, Okay. And because um, in King James's territory, these folks were Anglicans, and they were very Arminian in, their, in the way they uh, approached things, 
They couldn't have this Geneva Bible influence coming over and confusing people. So King James's um, goal was to have a Bible without footnotes, without the Calvinistic quote quote flavor, and to just have a just a simple readable Bible in the vernacular. Very very um, uh, appropriate um, uh, goal that he had there. However. King James was not free completely of bias himself. As I mentioned, he was part of the Anglican Church, and because of that, there was a somewhat of a framework he had to work inside too. So because of the hierarchy in the Anglican Church and the way things were structured, uh, it, didn't, it wouldn't have fit the Anglican model to, to interpret the word ecclesia into something of a local assembly. Uh, the Anglican model was, was quite like we would think of the, uh, the, perhaps the Catholic Church, quite hierarchical, quite, quite, a, um, uh, quite a little, um, you know, you knew where you fit in the, in the program of things. And, it, of course, in those days it was the country or. You know, it didn't matter if you lived in this part of the country or that part, you were all part of the Anglican Church and you, you all did things the same way and you all at some point reported to the top. Okay, so unfortunately, to um, aid that model, he told his interpreters or his translators, use the word church in, in when you're translating that. Now, I wasn't there in consultation. I didn't hear that uh, from him, but that is what I have read, and I have no reason not to think that is correct. And the very fact that when you come to Acts 19 and you see these three words assembly where church just would not fit at all, that it was translated assembly. Okay, so how does this, how does this even, why does this matter? It matters because if we think of church, if you would read through your Bibles and every time you would come to the word church, you would just insert the local assembly, the local assembly, the local assembly. It may begin to... Um, it may sometimes make you think differently about what you're reading. Okay, uh, it, sometimes we have this idea that the church is something other or something larger than the local assembly. And hang with me here for a minute. I'll I'll try to get to that. Okay, so let's let's think about this for a second. If we think about the church as a local assembly, and we and we take that framework and begin to read through our New Testaments, does it change any of our ideas about the church or the ecclesia, you might say? Okay, so the first thing I'd like to address is we have this idea, or the, the idea is around anyway, that there is this thing called the invisible church. I'm sure you've heard of this if you've ever, you know, if you've been around much at all, that there's, a, there's an invisible church. It'd be interesting whether you whether you agree with that or not. I, I would like to suggest this morning that there is no such thing as an invisible church. Nobody in Ephesus or Athens um, debated who the ecclesia was of the local town. That, that was not a debate. It was these people here. They, they were the governing body. That's who they were. Um, if you read through. Uh, the, the book of Acts or any of the, um, the Paul's writings, any of the epistles. Again, he always says to the church, which is at Corinth, to the church, which is at Athens, to the church this, to the church that. 
So it was obviously that there was, if we plug in local assembly, he's saying, I'm addressing the local assembly, which is at Colossae or whatever. It's interesting to me that the uh, Hutterite leader, Peter Ritterman, that he wrote a book or two, and he described the Anabaptist church as an assembly of the children of God. And, and I think that was correct. I think he had a, a correct um, uh, idea of what that was. In some of the older um, confessions of faith, uh, when addressing the church, one, one reads like this, to put it concisely, we believe and confess in a visible church of God. So where did this idea of an invisible church come from? Well, it turns out, if you would have been uh, living in the 1500s when we had that reformation of evil and so on and so forth, um, if you came down on the wrong side of the thoughts of the time, you would be relentlessly persecuted. That was That's no news to anybody here. You know that. Um, I don't know whether you know this part or not, but they, they tell me persecution isn't all that fun. It, it's not that fun to um, you know get burned at the stake or, or you know have your head cut off. The, these things aren't exactly fun things, okay? And it takes a pretty strong, solid person to carry through. I mean, does anybody agree with that? I, I think that would be a safe conclusion, okay? Well, um, there was plenty of people in those days, and uh, you know I had to ask myself if I would have fell in this camp that said, wait a minute, does it have to be that hard? Can we not just go ahead and attend the local church that the state has sanctioned, just go there, have the babies baptized, do the communion, just do squeak by, do the least you have to do to, to pacify the local government, and on Wednesday nights and Friday nights, we're going to meet in our houses, and we're going to have real church. And we're going to follow the real Bible. And we're going to do things Jesus' way. Couldn't that be done? Wouldn't that be sufficient? Can we just not do the bare minimum and get by? Is not the Christian life a spiritual, heartfelt thing after all? These people came to be known as spiritualists. And they promoted what came to be known as the invisible church. So in other words, we have this large body of people... We had here and there spread throughout this large body of people. We have true people, and they are the invisible church. There was a man in North Germany by the name of Caspar Schwankfeld that promoted this quite, uh, quite extensively. And those of you that know early American history probably will, will recognize that. They, there was, uh, there was uh, a group known as the Schwankfelders that uh, settled in Pennsylvania there and uh, the reason they were called that is because they were they were followers of this man and that's basically their tenet what they what they believed in let's let's be more spiritual the movement also was known as pietism i won't get into that a lot but again the idea was christianity is heart not outward it's all about the heart that's what it is i will say this in all due respect i find it hard to be too terribly hard on these people. Uh, maybe that's just a soft spot, spot in my heart. But I can understand their pain. I really can. It was a tough, tough era to live in. And I will leave it to God whether those people made the right call or not. However, I must 
also say that Jesus said in Matthew 16, 24, that if any man's going to come after me, he must deny himself, he must take up his cross, and he must follow me. And he promised that that wouldn't always be easy. Just one little side note on this um, spiritual, heartfelt, personal, religion type thing. What if Daniel would have taken that attitude? What if he had said, you know, King's decree is we don't we don't pray three times a day or anybody to anybody but him. But you know, I'll I'll just keep the windows shut for X amount of time. I won't bother with that because it's a it's a heartfelt thing after all. Or what about the the three Hebrew children? You know, there again. Uh, could we not just bow? Uh, God knows our heart. We'll just do what we got to do. Maybe we won't even bow the whole way, but just kind of bend over halfway or something, and you know, we'll, we'll get by that way. The people of faith that we admire the most were the people that went all the way, the whole way. I want to be very clear here that I'm not promoting that. Christianity is not something that happens in the heart. It is. It definitely is. People are saved one at a time the same way. It's not like you you join a church and that saves you. That's not what it is. But we can fall off the boat on either side. The early Anabaptists pointed out in Ephesians 2... They used this as kind of their paradigm for why they believed in a visible local assembly. In Ephesians 2, 19 and 20, it says, Now therefore, you are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God, in whom ye also are built together for a habitation of God through the Spirit. If you notice there, we are built together for a habitation of God. Okay? Their argument was, God works in the church. That's, that's his avenue of working in today's world. And again, I have to go back to Pete's sermon last Sunday. We're just all individual building blocks, and we've got to find our fit in that building, and we've got to fit. And we've got to let the stone beside us fit. And we've got to understand that it's the structure. It's not the individual stone, but it's the structure that we're after. Jesus talks about a city that's on a hill. There's two things about cities on hills. Number one, it's more than one person. And number two, it's on a hill. And it just can't be hid. It's very, very visible. Another thing that I would like to address just briefly is we have, as as, uh, our churches, have practiced through the years that Baptism and church membership are one and the same. And that's been challenged and discussed through the years. Is that, is that right? Is it not right? Um, well, I would just say this. It seems biblical in the fact that when you look through the book of Acts, again, I'm going to refer to that, especially Acts 2. I'm going to read a verse there. In verse 41, it says, Then they that gladly received his word and were baptized, and the same day there were added unto them about... 3,000 souls. Verse 47, And the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. So it seems like there was a real connection between uh, baptism and an identity with that local ecclesia there at Jerusalem. Just a comment on that. Um, in recent times, there has been... Um, conversation, discussion, whatever, pushback, that being a part of a church is not the important part. 
It's the fact that you were saved and baptized and, um, and you're a part of the universal church. So let, let's think about that a little bit. I understand why that discussion happens. Because, again, let's back up 500 years. In, in the days of persecution, if a person had the grit to, to take himself and join himself to a local assembly that did not embrace the favorable uh, state church of the day, you, you just by your sheer action were making it pretty clear that I am identifying with Christ. That's where I'm at. Just that act alone was proof positive that something had happened in your heart. If you had the stuff to do that, it was pretty clear where you stood. However, whenever time moves on and, and persecution abates, now what? Now it's not quite as, not quite as uh, evident whether a person has a heartfelt change when he joins the local assembly. Because it does not cost, it does not have that, that price tag to it that it did at one time. So as, as, the t as time progresses and persecution subsides and we have this taking place, uh, people now can, quote, quote, join a church and never, ever experience a personal renewal, a personal conversion. So that causes problems, too. Now we're trying to build church with people that aren't saved. It's not the right way to build church. You can't do it. It doesn't work. Okay? So rightly so, we had a, a um, I would call it a revival and, a, and an emphasis on personal salvation, which was wonderful. That, that needs to be. But I think the pendulum, at least in some places, has swung the other way, where now the drive is get saved. Whether you're a part of a church or not is not that important. It's, it's a matter of whether you are saved. You know, you join the, quote, quote, universal church. And when one understands that the word ecclesia means a very local assembly, it doesn't fit. See, it just doesn't fit. Some would point to some of Paul's writings in reference to Christ's body as an argument for a universal church, a universal ex ecclesia. And I understand why that, why that uh, concept could be there. But I would suggest this morning that it's more like this. In every part of the world there are believers. And if there are true believers, true disciples of Christ in, let's say, you name the country, wherever you want to name and I happen to run in by some turn of events, I run into these people. I think that the way we think about things and the way we practice are going to be relatively similar because we're, we're all following the same book, right? But, but it, the way it works is over there in that country, they have their local assembly. They have their ecclesia. Here I have mine. And over there they have theirs. And in that way, perhaps you could say there is a universal church, but qualify it. Okay, I don't say I'm part of a universal church and somehow um, I don't have to belong to a local assembly. I just um, I'm just part of this big um, this just this uh, overarching something or other. Uh, be careful. Be careful with that line of thinking. Um, I think it can it can it can carry us off in a wrong direction. Okay. 
Another thing I'd like to just point out quickly is that the church is made up of specific groups of holy and recognizable people. And I won't turn to this because I don't have time, but if we would read through Acts 2, here we have uh, Peter's sermon uh, there at Pentecost, and it defines very clearly the people that joined up with the, with the church that day. They repented, they were baptized, they received the Holy Ghost, they removed themselves from the untoward generation. It says they gr- gladly received the word. They continued steadfastly in what they were taught. And it seems like they had a, a compulsion, a, a God-given a compulsion to um, share their blessings, their physical blessings with others voluntary, voluntarily. And it says in verse 47 there that they had favor with all the people. They were attractive because of their, their unblameable uh, reputation. And it says the church grew daily. Uh, just a wonderful um, uh, passage to read of, of, the, of, the, of the way the church grew there in, that, in those early days. In Acts 5, a few chapters later, it talks about that by the hands of the apostles were many signs and wonders wrought among the people. And this is what it says of the rest of the people. And it says, The rest durst no man join himself to them, but the people magnified them. I mean, these people were so different that if you didn't meet this criteria, you, you really didn't want to. You really didn't want to join. But you knew you wouldn't fit. See, you you knew that that you had to you had to experience a true conversion, or it just wasn't. You weren't going to fit in very well. I heard a um, a quote by a person here recently, and it's it's made me think. And I hope it's not true. And I hope he was speaking about the church at large and not this church, okay? But he made this comment. He said, if the Spirit of the Lord was to depart from the church, 90% of the activities would continue unabated. Now that, I thought about that, and I thought, woe is me if that is true. Uh, I certainly hope that is not the case. But the point the man was trying to make was it is extremely important that we that we understand that the people that belong to the local ecclesia have to be holy and unreprovable and, and uh, very much filled with the Spirit. The other thing that is very unique to the, to the local ecclesia, again, think about the, the New Testament person that's hearing this. He's thinking the local city-state government. So... Jesus gives some instruction about the structure of his newfound ecclesia. And it was, I think it was a new thought to the ears of his hearers. Jesus knew that all organizations, including the one he was setting up, need structure and organization. He knew that. But he also knew the propensity of people to structure it in a very ungodly way. And so he gave specific direction to this. And... Um, He told them in Luke 22 that the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship, but as far as you, you be a servant. And I wonder how that how that resonated with the disciples, because I have a feeling that um, as they observed the local governing bodies, the local assemblies, 
there probably was somewhat of, of, a, of a lordship arrangement there. I have no doubt that that was probably the case. Peter picks up on this in, in 1 Peter 5, and he, and he drives home the same point. He says, I exhort the elders because I'm an elder, and I do not want you to be a lord. He drives that home one more time. Just attitude of servanthood in the structure of Jesus' assembly. But then there's also the attitude of love and support that comes out in, in many of Paul's writings and other places about the entire body rallying around and supporting those that uh, are called to give uh, leadership to the structure, to the, um, to the body. And so we have that part of it. But then there's, there's uh, some real summaries that I like in, in 1 Peter 5 and in Philippians 2. 1 Peter 5 especially is just it's such an inclusive, uh, concise way of putting it. Likewise, ye younger, submit yourself to the elder. And this second part I really like. Yea, all of you be subject one to another and be clothed with humility. For God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. And then in Philippians 2, let nothing be done through strife or vain glory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Folks, if we can take those six verses that I referred to and we can incorporate them, we will have a wonderful, wonderful church to work with, a wonderful assembly. We, we live in times where this, where this paradigm, I think, is being challenged for a couple of reasons. I think the first reason is that, unfortunately, there have been too many cases where the admonition for the elders not to be lords has been ignored. That never works. That will cause problems immediately. And it seems like this is especially true when the elders of what should be of the local assembly are not of the local assembly. How's that work? Uh, not very well. It doesn't seem to follow the, the scriptural paradigm. And it becomes very much of a breeding ground for misunderstanding and suspicion. And we also may as well just admit that we live in a climate in our culture that is extremely anti-structure and anti-authority based. It's, it's not news to you. If you work among people and you find yourself in a position, uh, you, you know that's true. Many churches, too many churches today, and I'm, t I'm speaking broadly here now, see the role of the congregational elders as nothing other than someone to dance to the sinful wishes of a very worldly assembly, I fear. Well, I'll, I'll let off on, um, on that particular point, but my, the point I'm trying to drive home is there is a very um, explicit direction given in the Bible about that part of the local assembly. We do well to pay attention to it. Too many churches, too many assemblies today, I shouldn't say too many, but there's, yeah, there is too many, that have decided that we're not going to follow that structure. We're not going to do that. Uh, because after all, it doesn't work. It just causes problems. It doesn't work. I would just say this. If, if that is a person's attitude, it's not because the Bible doesn't work. Something went awry in the way it was executed, not because the Bible was written incorrectly. Okay. 
Lastly, I would just like to um, leave this with you. The local assembly, the ecclesia, needs to have a purpose. The local ecclesias of the New Testament era had a purpose. Their purpose was to execute the, um, the um, uh, goings-on of the local town, the local city, whatever it was. Uh, they understood their purpose. They did it. They did it the way it was supposed to be done. I see two purposes in the New Testament for Christ's ecclesia, for the local assembly here at Prairie and for the local assemblies throughout the world. Ephesians 1 talks about we should be to the praise of his glory. I think the local assembly should be a model to the, to the, to the world around us of what it can be like when people are changed and born again and can live together in unity. That is such a wonderful experience. And when you, when you get out and about and you realize how much disunity and disharmony and upset and suspicion and this and that is in our world around us, this is a wonderful reprieve. And we should be a, just, just this model. We should be the city on the hill that shows people what it could be like if everybody lived like Jesus. And then in John 17, in Jesus' prayer, he goes like this in verse 18. He says, As thou hast sent me into the world, even so have I also sent them into the world. And as we read through Acts again, I'll refer to that, again and again you see that the, the explicit um, goal of the church was to spread that, just to spread that message everywhere, everywhere they went, and to do it systematically. And again, I would like to just say that um, historically, vibrant Christian ecclesias have always been very, very evangelistic in their approach. That, that was their goal. They wanted, to, they wanted to share the good news, and they did that very systematically often. It seems when a, pers- lo- um, a church loses that goal of evangelism and being a model to the world, it seems like they're bound to find themselves in a swamp of interpersonal and ecclesiastical problems. And far too many people, or far too many churches find themselves there because I believe they've ceased to have a legitimate reason to exist. And so we'll just fight with one another instead. Not a very good commentary. Well, in conclusion... Being a part of a local assembly brings a lot of benefits. A lot of benefits. We benefit from different perspectives. We benefit from caring brothers and sisters. We benefit from people that will be honest with us. We benefit when we have physical setbacks and we need support. We benefit because we have someone to celebrate our mountains and our successes with. We benefit because this is the venue that Jesus has chosen to work with in these last days. So I ask you this morning, does God's plan still work today? It better would. If it's not, it's not his fault. It sure isn't. It's not that his blueprint is flawed. And I hope that this morning in some way I have inspired you to appreciate the local assembly. I hope that you've been inspired to appreciate Prairie Mennonite Church, may I say that. 
Um, and I hope you've been inspired to make sure that you're that small stone that fits nicely into that larger structure and brings God glory.